to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hi, I'm James Riley. I'm the Editorial Director at Innovation Oz and welcome to The Commercial Disco. Today we're talking to Anne Moffat. 50-year veteran of this industry. She's just written a book, in fact, The IT Girl, 50 Years as a Woman Working in the Information Technology Industry. There's a lot of ground covered here, including some serious policy stuff and some not-so-serious stuff, but fascinating nonetheless. The person who taught her to code was Tim Berners-Lee's dad and picking up Grace Hopper from the airport. Remember the hero worship going on there? And Moffat is a fabulous woman who's had a terrific career, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Okay, well, Anne Moffat, let's talk about this book that you've just successfully published, The IT Girl, 50 Years as a Woman Working in the Information Technology Industry. How did you get started on that project and when? Well, so many women in the industry have come to me and told me their stories and how they've managed their lives and what's been successful and what hasn't, that I felt that I'd like to publish all those stories, little vignettes of what other people have done. And I started 20 years ago when I retired. I started writing the vignettes. But the more I wrote, the more I realized I was writing my story. And I didn't want to write my story. I wanted to write other people's stories. But when I spoke to people about writing, they said, no, no, write your own story because that'll be your story. It'll be honest. You, you've felt you've lived that story. So I started 20 years ago. Right, and successfully published in 2020, that amazing year that we're all experiencing and obviously sitting here on Zoom. We're going to take a bit of a a chronological journey. You're a difficult interview subject, Anne, just because you've done a a lot of stuff over a long period and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But I guess one way to start would be that photograph that you sent me some time ago that's on the cover of your book, that fabulous photograph of you sitting at a kitchen table with your daughter, Claire. Lounge room table. Lounge room table, sorry, with your daughter, daughter Claire, at your side doing some computing, but obviously without a computer in sight. Talk me through where you were at that stage of life and uh, from, from a professional and a personal perspective. Well, I joined Freelance Programmers Limited, which was started by Steve Shirley about three years before that. And Steve wanted to give work with people who wanted to work from home with their children, programmers who wanted to work from home. And initially, she simply asked a friend to ask a friend and so on. By the time I applied to join them, when I had my first baby, that was in 1965, there were 11 people working for the company. And Steve, who's a wonderful marketer, had just landed the contract, $20,000 in 1965 for a contract to develop the systems to analyze the black box flight recorder for Concorde. And the reason why that was very special was that Concorde, being a very different sort of airplane, had to have the black box analyzed each time it flew before it was allowed to fly again, before it was allowed to be given a certificate. So systems had to be written in machine code because the thing had to be turned around very quickly. Also, it was really just a lot of statistics. There were 40,000 instruments on the original prototype Concorde, and there were, some of them were read 10 times a second. Some of them I understood, like how high it was going and how much fuel it was using, but most of them, to me, were just bits of statistics. And there were norms and there were statistical equations to process for the, for the figures. And um, I applied to join freelance programmers, 
And Steve thought I was a godsend because here I was, somebody who really could develop systems in machine code, which was fairly rare in those days. It was very old-fashioned. You know, we were starting to have sort of automatic languages. And also, I was a statistician. So I filled both criteria. But Steve thought the system could be written by one person. Well, it couldn't. And in the end, we had a team of 20 people. British Aircraft Corporation were very understanding. They knew that we worked very hard and they paid us for, for that. And they paid us the $2,000 bonus we got if we were to develop on time. Very exciting times. Oh, yeah. But what, what an extraordinary thing. Firstly, work from home is nothing new, I guess, because uh, you were sitting at your lounge room table way back then doing that kind of quite well, very sophisticated work. I'm going to take a step even further back. Your entry into information technology, what were your interests coming through as a kid and uh, how did you get into it? It was quite a male-dominated area, I would have thought, but at the time as it is now, I suppose. Yeah, but I didn't think that gender had anything to do with work. To me, I just sort of, I loved maths. I was good at maths. I wanted to go to university and my parents couldn't afford that. So I did my equivalent of high school certificate at night school and worked for the Met Office because the Met Office gave you a day off a week to, to study. The Met Office was going to buy a computer. This would have been 1958. And my boss was supposed to be one of the four people to go and learn about this computer. Funnily enough, at Bletchley, where all the code cutting was done. And he didn't want to go because he had some personal things that he was doing. So he fought to get me to go on the course. Well, being a woman, I was frightened that I wouldn't know enough about computers. And we had all these things in the newspapers about them being brains, you know. So I went to the library and, and got the three books that they had on computers and read those and understood a little bit more about what a computer was. I also passed my forecasting exam, so I was a qualified forecaster by that time. And I was a mad cyclist. I can see you've got a bike on your T-shirt today. Oh, yes. Well, I was a real mad cyclist. My boyfriend and I had cycled to Land's End one holiday. And we decided we'd cycle to John O'Groats the next year, which is the northernmost point of Scotland. We were coming down from the highest pub in England, very steep hill, when I hit a, a stone off a dry stone wall and went head over heels off my bike and knocked myself out completely. And I was out for about three weeks. Very serious accident. When I came back, I couldn't count backwards from 10. I tried doing some maths in my head, but I just couldn't count back to 10. And I was crying. The doctor came in and said, what's wrong? He said, look, because you know you can't count back from 10, you're going to be all right. might take two years. And they decided it would take two years. Met Office gave me time off. They suspended my degree that I'd just got into. And I felt absolutely miserable. But every time I got on my bike to go somewhere, I fell off and that wasn't any good either. So my boyfriend worked for Kodak. And he said, Kodak have on their staff notice board a very sort of brown and dirty notice that says they're looking for a computer programmer with a maths degree. If I were you, I'd, I'd apply for it because you know all about these computers. I'd actually asked London University for all their books on computers and they'd found me 10. And I thought, you know, my face was an absolute mess, very badly scarred. And I was still going to hospital once a week to see which bits of my brain were working on an encephalograph. And I, I thought they'd find out. So I applied for the job. I got an interview and I got it subject to two things, subject to an aptitude test and a medical. And uh, 
The aptitude test was very simple, and I was told I got the highest score anybody in England had got to that time on the aptitude test, but the medical was a worry. But they didn't ask me why my face was so badly scarred, and I didn't tell them, so I got the job. And off you went. And off I went, yes. And so I was, I was working in the quality control area on statistics of quality control. So can you just describe to me what, you know, in that environment, I mean, let's, what, what, were you, were you the only woman in the office with her, with her, with her colleagues? No, in those days, um, if you wanted to program a computer, you weren't a programmer per se. That wasn't your job. Your job was something else. You know, I was a statistician. And if you wanted to use a computer to do your job, um, you had to learn to program. So in the office I worked in, which was operations research, I'd moved out of statistics into operations research, we had two women and two men. And that was the same everywhere. It didn't become male-dominated until 1960. I mean, have you got any thoughts on why that was the case? 1960 was a line in the sand? What was, what was that? Yeah, I think so, because I think people were starting to understand that computing could be a profession, and it was hard, and it, you, know, you earn good money. And men started to see this was a way to the top in organizations. And so men started to come in as managers. I mean, we didn't have a manager. I suppose we did have a manager, but we were just a group of four people who worked on operations research. And gradually, as the men came in, they took the top jobs and the women were pushed into punch card girls, computer operators, if they were lucky, getting the tea if they were lucky. And I wouldn't accept that. You know, I was a programmer from 1959 and I was going to be a programmer. And it was fine. I was the only woman in the professional organization in Kodak. So let's uh, jump ahead a little bit. You moved to Australia in 1960. 1974. 1974. Okay. So covered a lot of territory. And, and in the intervening years, you had progressed your, uh, you know, computers had obviously progressed, but uh, you progressed your career. You were a member of the British Computer Society, and I think your speciality was in databases. It was by the 1960s, yes. It was everybody's speciality by the 1960s. Okay. So how did you get to Australia? Who recruited you? Um, CSA, which was the computer arm of AMP, and AMP in those days was the, the biggest company in Australia by far in terms of assets. And they, they had a particular problem that they were working on? They were building a system they called AmpNet, which was going to be an all-singing, all-dancing, real-time, you name it, system. And it didn't work. And they were positive that it didn't work because the database administrator didn't know what he was doing. And you've been brought in to... And I was brought in. Uh, evidently, they went all around the world. They went to America and Germany and so on, and in England. And they asked everybody who was anybody who was an expert in database. And I was on everybody's lists in England. So they offered me the job. It was a two-year contract initially. And I thought, yeah, I'll go to Australia for two years, have a bit of seeing the world on the way. Isn't that the way it always goes? I'll just stay for a year. I'll just stay for two years. And then That's right. That's right. And I, and, I was, and I hadn't got a husband at that time. I had had a husband, but he shot off and worked for Kodak in America. I didn't want to do that. And so I had two children aged nine and six with me. And they loved Australia. They thought it was wonderful. Wow, that would take a bit of juggling, though, I would imagine. They're good kids. But the database administrator was Dr. Neville Black, PhD, 
And he was just first class. And so were everybody in his group. And I couldn't fault what they were doing at all. So after I'd been there a month, I wrote a report that said, there's nothing wrong with database. And I was told that I wasn't brought halfway across the world at a huge salary to tell them there wasn't anything wrong because they knew there was something wrong. So they sacked Neville Black. They took him back to America and sacked him. And I was put in a big office with nothing to do. But I did know there was something wrong there. I'd been used to coming in as an expert to government things in, in the UK and just sniffing out where the problem really was. I didn't know where the problem was, but I realised there certainly was a problem. So, so what was the outcome then? Well, the outcome was, I don't know whether you remember a thing called CUDN. It was a packet switching network that Telstra were building. Of course, Telstra were government owned in those days. They were telecom. And really, computers weren't ready to do that sort of stuff. It was just the edge of technology. And so Telstra stopped building that system. And one of the guys who was on the system, who again was a PhD, decided that this was something that Australia needed. Who could build it? Who could afford to build it apart from the government? So he came to AMP and decided he'd build it with AMP. Thereby, they became the second computer user in Australia or the second owner user of a computer in this country? No, no, that, that was a long time before. That was in 1956 when they bought a, a first IBM 1401 computer. Right. And so did the MLC, and there was a fight between the two of them on who got their system working first, and evidently AMP got their system working first. No, this was a completely new computer system, which was quite – I worked on packet switching in the UK, very experimental – and I'd actually heard Donald Davis talk about packet switching in the 60s. And I thought, if ever we can link computers sending data down wires instead of by files, sending files, you know, magnetic tape files or something, that would be very powerful. So I was quite interested in that. And I'd been in a couple of computer committees to try and get that to work. But it was a very difficult thing. And this lad, who really was a great guy, he just got a team of people together and decided to build it. Now, he couldn't do it. Computers really weren't capable of building that at that time, as, Telstra, as Telecom had found out. But that was the problem. What happened was he had to go into the basic system software, and every time there was a change from Univac, who was their computer supplier, system software, the links had to be rebuilt. There were mistakes sometimes in building the, the links. The applications couldn't work because they system software didn't work and so on. So I, I sussed that out. And I guess I was sort of like a hero there for a while. I bet you were. Um, Wasn't it? And, and, and AMP offered me a job straight away with more money and a 2% house mortgage and goodness knows what. Wasn't that an extraordinary moment or even an extraordinary concept of thinking if we could only send files through wires between computers instead of you know, magnetic tape or discs. It's just such an incredible thing to think of now that the internet is obviously this giant, yes. vast, yeah. Yeah, quite, quite incredible. I just want to fast forward a little bit through your years in the industry and then as an observer of IT in the years since you've left the industry, outside of the technology, what's changed? What thinking has changed? Is there a, a different dynamic yeah, I think there is. What saddens me is, you know, we all worked hard in the early days to get computers to do clever things. And now, you know, everybody's using Facebook and telling lies and sending false data and things like that. And I understand that about a third of the traffic on the internet is porn. 
And I didn't build computers for that. Yeah, I guess that's where, where we are right now. Well, well, also, I think people spend a lot of time on their phones. Again, looking at Facebook and things like that. And, and you know, the, you, see, you see babies in their, in their pushchairs with phones and they can scroll and do what everybody else does and see pictures. But people seem to live their life to be on their technology. They can't be without it. And I, I don't think that's good for us. Yeah, well, I guess the attention economy is certainly, a, you know, it's a dominant force in a lot of uh, people's lives and in business. Tell me about the business that you set up and ran in this country. What was its genesis and how did you go with that? Well, I was the director of the Institute of Information Technology at the University of New South Wales. And that was part of Button's initiative called Partners for Development. Button decided that we were importing all our technology from overseas, mainly from America. And so any company who imported technology had to leave something in Australia. So the four things he wanted them to leave was to build some of the technology here, physically build the hardware, to do some research in Australia, to employ some of the people in Australia. And I can't remember the fourth thing, but there were three things that they had to do. And the person with the biggest obligation, of course, was IBM because, you know, it was in the days partnerships for development was sort of the mid 80s. And it was in the days when everybody had IBM computers, all the big companies. And the story about around the industry was nobody ever got sacked for buying IBM. So IBM built a plant at Wangaratta and assembled PCs. They didn't really build PCs. They went on to build the RS6000s, which was their, um, their Unix machine, which was a quite a powerful machine. But initially, they just assembled PCs. They had trouble finding some research to do, and I helped them with that. What they decided to do was to hand all their customer and internal education to the universities. And each of the universities decided to do a different thing. You know, I think RMIT decided they'd do PC training. I think QUT decided they would do AS400 training and so on. But the University of New South Wales decided it could do everything. And after a while, IBM said they liked working with us. I mean, I had a professional life. I wasn't an academic. They didn't like talking to the academics in the other universities. So the University of New South Wales took the whole lot. When IBM hit their sticky spot, it was a very good initiative for the University of New South Wales because we were using academics to do the teaching with IBM principals. They were meeting real customers. I had a, a philosophy that if anybody on a course, say a database course, relational database course, was a customer was stuck, that we would help them with their problem. So the academics were talking to real people about real problems. I was paying the academics $1,500 a day. And if they traveled to Asia, which was where we had to go sometimes, they were sent business class. They could make links with their own friends. And academic pay was particularly low in those days, especially for IT people. You know, the industry paid a lot more. So it was, it was good for the university. And we made a profit, which went to the university's coffers. So it was all going very well until IBM hit their sticky spot in the beginning of the 90s. And I've got in my book, actually, I can't remember, but I've got my book, how their profits went down and their takings went down. And I mean, they nearly vanished at that stage. They hadn't picked the change point which was that software was more important than hardware. They just hadn't picked that. The old story that nobody got sacked for buying IBM didn't hold anymore because we'd had 
the justice who'd worked on the IBM antitrust case had written Big Blue, IBM's use and abuse of power. So people were beginning to understand how IBM worked. So IBM wanted to pay us $400 a day for teaching. Well, I was paying the academics $1,500. When I say teaching, I mean, there's quite a lot in the background. They've got to understand their subject, keep up to date and so on. So it's not just standing up and teaching. And the university decided that they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to subsidize IBM. So my unit was closed down. My staff said, hey, we can do this ourselves. We picked up the education for digital, which was the second largest computer company in the world in those days. We'd got quite a lot of interesting stuff we were doing. We were doing some research, which stayed with the university. But they said, we can do this work ourselves. And I said, oh, no, you know, the, the, the university isn't going to let us do that. I mean, we were taking $2 million a year off digital, for instance. And they said, oh, yes, you can do that. So my staff and I set up our system, and we set it up on the same basis that FPL was run, that people could work as much as they possibly could. They would work from home, and it was very flexible working. And I was worried because I'd never done any marketing in my life, and I'd watched marketeers work, and I thought, I don't want to be like that. But I found that, really, you just had to do a good job. You had to provide good service, estimate properly, which is one of the problems with our industry. We can't seem to estimate properly. And people passed you from one client to another. You know, that's a good company. And so the business just grew very easy. Wow. Um, I want to ask you about 1990. You found your founding member of FIT, yes. uh, Females in IT and Telecommunications. Yes. Um, what's the, the genesis of that? Was that among work colleagues or was it? No, I'd found, and I'd found the same in England when I was the only woman on the British Computer Society Council, that women seemed to come to me with their little problems. To them, quite big problems, but problems. Most of the problems were really the same. And I thought, rather than come to me, why don't you talk to each other? But they didn't want to talk to each other. And the same happened with FIT. You know, I had quite a high profile. I'd been chairman of the New South Wales branch of the Computer Society. I was often called up as a member of the University of New South Wales to talk on technology on the telly or the radio. And women sort of came up and told me their stories and I just wanted them to tell each other. So I started FIT with 16 of the top women in Australia and it just grew. And it, it's now over 4,000 members. We've got three policies. The first is that there's no joining fee. There's no membership fee. And the reason for that is that I found women who had problems, often didn't have money to spend on themselves. You know, they were bringing up children by themselves or something. So, and that, that still holds. And the third one was that it wasn't going to be a hierarchy like the computer society. We weren't going to have chairmen and committees and things like that. We were just going to have a network. It was a network of women helping women and men wanted to join. And so we said, well, all right, then F stands for fellas too, so the men can join. We had one man who was always at our breakfasts. And I went up and I said, you know, what interest do you have in this? He said, oh, he said, I travel in ladies' underwear. He said, I make some good customers with these breakfasts. Goodness. I've, I would have thought it would be quite controversial these days to have a membership open to men. Socially, have things changed in that intervening period between 1990? No. I went and gave a talk for their 25th anniversary, 150 people at the lunch, and I would say 10% of the audience was men. Again, they wanted to know what made women tick. Yeah. So I suppose that's, uh, that's certainly useful. I wonder whether a, a man who's um, 
interested in going to one of those meetings might be one of the converted already. Well, when I spoke to the men, you know, they understood diversity was good and they understood that they would like to take women into their business, but they were sort of hesitant. I won't name companies, but I had companies saying, well, if they were all like you, Anne, you know, it'd be all right, but, but they're not, they're not. And I said, yes, they are underneath. They're all exactly the same. You know, just try it. it won't hurt you. But the thing that saddened me, and I'm told this doesn't happen so much now, if I read in the Australian, let's say, that a woman had taken a senior role in IT in a company, I'd say, can you come over and have a cup of coffee? And then can you tell the people at a breakfast or a lunch how you got there, what your journey was? And then, oh, yes, they do that. But then I'd say, let's have a look at your organization chart. I'm just interested. And there they were sitting at the top of the pile, no women reports. All the reports were men. And I'd say, don't you have any good women that you can bring along? And they said, oh, no, 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 now I'm up here. You know, I, I, it makes me look much more powerful if all my reports are men. Now, I, that really gets me. Yeah. And I'm told it doesn't happen as much now. Well, I guess that was my next question. If you look at the continuum of your 50 years in IT, or even just take from the time you founded FIT in 1990 until now, from your observation, what's changed? I mean, I'm not particularly asking if it's easier for women to get roles, but more is the process changed, the numbers changed? What are you seeing? Well, the numbers of women in technology all around the world is still less than 20%. So something must be wrong, I think, because I think computing is a wonderful profession. I mean, I just feel as if I've been paid an awful lot of money for having great fun all my life. So I feel very fortunate. So it's a problem. Why are there less women in, in the industry? I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I, mean, I, I wonder whether it would be how girls are taught in kindergarten and year one and year two, or is it a, I, I'm unsure of what those dynamics are and whether young women or girls need to have decided to get into a technology type of profession, you know, at, at quite an early stage in order to kind of get through. Well, my observation is that when the kids are young, say up to 13 or 14, the girls are quite keen on technology. They're certainly as good at it as the boys. I run a little computer company up here and we had girls, boys, we were teaching them from eight or nine to code and, and the girls were just as good as the boys. In fact, some of the girls were better than the boys. I think girls make good programmers because A, they pay meticulous attention to detail and they code all the really obscure ways that this program can work, whereas the men in, in general will just sort of code the main loop and Yes, somebody will find out that it doesn't work on a Friday if it's Friday the 13th or something, and I can just add that later. When you listen to a woman talking to a business person about the requirements, the woman's always saying, can you just go over that again? Can I, I, just want, can I tell you what I think you're saying? And can you confirm with me that this is what you're saying? The guys, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, it's an insurance system. I know I've built 25 insurance systems. I know what it is, you know. So women are better at eliciting information from the business people to get their specs right. And women test, test, test. Women don't want to be found wrong. Women don't want anybody to find a fault with their work. So they test, 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 test. So, you know, things that go into production are, are less likely to have errors. Now, that's just my theory about women in the industry and why women should be in the industry. I've met some wonderful male programmers, but in general, women work that way, men don't. But why do they stop? 
Well, first of all, when they get to be about 13 or 14, I think the sex hormones kick in. And I think that the girls start wanting to appeal to the boys. Now, I didn't get that because I was at an all-girls school. So, you know, they were just all girls. But in a mixed school, the girls start thinking that they might fancy one of the boys. And girls know that boys don't like clever girls. And they think that Cody is clever. So they don't really want to do that stuff because it makes them look just too geeky and too clever. But again, it's not all girls, but that's just something that happens. Now, when girls go to university, there's about a, an equal number of girls going to university to do computing degrees as boys. Halfway through that process, half the girls have dropped out. By the time they graduate, you're down to a quarter. Five years in the industry, you're down to 20%. Yeah, it just seems to be uh, quite a problem. Well, the men keep telling me it's because women want to have babies and they'll leave the industry. But it's not that. It's not that. I mean, women these days have babies and work. Yeah, of course. Not that at all. Of course. Okay, look, we are conscious of time. We're going to move on just uh, very quickly now to want to get your views on skills. And I guess it's a tangential sort of an issue, like how do we get this diverse workforce in technology generally, but then in all the the different branches now of information technology, we want lots of men, lots of women, lots of, you know, we basically just want people in greater numbers entering our workforce here. So you've got some thoughts on this. You sort of thought, you know, you've been running training companies, you've been involved in this for a very long time. What's, what do we do now to make sure that we're filling these positions? Well, I think the rich companies, you know, the banks, the finance companies and so on, they can afford to buy the best. So they want the best graduates. But when they come into the industry, most of the work is in maintaining old systems. And, you know, that, that's not what the graduates were made for. They get very bored. They talk to their friends and they find that their friends say, oh, no, well, at the place I work, I don't have to do that. I, I'm on clever stuff, new stuff. So your new programmer, decides he'll hop the fence and go somewhere else. He finds, well, the, the new place is just the same. And he hears another friend and he hops the fence again. And by the time he's hopped three fences, he might be married and he might have children and he might be thinking more of a career and, and he'll get the golden handcuffs, you know, the salaries, the bonuses and so on, and he won't hop anymore. Now, I think we need the, the really good brains that come out of our universities. We need them to do new things. There's just so much to invent in the, in the world of IT, so much more to learn. And yet we have the majority of people doing this mundane stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not pretending that vocational training is for a lesser intelligent person. And I was on the board of New South Wales TAFE, so I'm very pro-vet training. A lot of the work can be done by people who've just been trained. If I can teach eight-year-olds to code in six weeks, you know, somebody who goes to a vet course and comes out with an equivalent of, say, Cert 4, which is theoretically halfway through a degree in vocational education, those people just want a job. They want a good job in a good company. Now, they could do this grunt stuff, and they'd be pleased to do it. And some of them, some of them will be so good, they'll climb up the ladder and do more and maybe go to university, maybe not. But think about the cost. Think about the differential in pay scales between a vet student and a graduate. Things would cost less. I mean, this is an area that has been talked about a lot, particularly in in the case of cyber. I think there's some vet courses now that um, are specifically looking at 
at those kinds of industrial cyber skills, for want of a better word. Look, we're going to wrap it up in a minute. Anne Moffat, I really appreciate your your time on this. I wanted this, There's two things I wanted to ask. Firstly, and it's probably a bit dangerous asking this question because I don't know the answer to it, but that little girl in that photograph, just tell me a little bit about her. Did she follow you into a, a mathematical sort of technology career? Not at all. My daughter is brilliant. She was always ducks of her school and so on. But she decided to leave school at 15. You know, I I couldn't go to university. I wanted both my children to go to university. No, she left school at 15. She wanted to bake bread. So she got up at four in the morning, went and baked bread, came back at midday and slept. After that, she picked. She was a fruit picker. She was an itinerant picker, had a caravan and then a bus, went all around Australia. When she was 30, she decided, maybe that's not the life I really want. So she went to university. And she's now a teacher, but she focuses on special needs. So she was just recently, she was in charge of providing all the special needs services for all the children at Catholic schools north of Brisbane. It's a huge job. Wow. Well, that's a life well spent, isn't it? It's kind of countercultural in your youth, getting all that fun stuff done and then getting a little bit serious. Okay, the final question really is a technology one. And I guess I just wanted to ask, what are you excited about in the vast world of IT? What's going on now that you're really liking the look of? Oh, I'm just so excited when I see what happens. I bought a computer called a chip. I don't know whether you've heard of the chip. It's $9 US and $13 postage. Wow. But it, but it actually will do all the things that a strawberry pile do or that a Microsoft computer will do, you know, $9. crazy. And I, I thought that was very clever until I saw the new Apple Watch. And the new Apple Watch, the technology on the new Apple Watch is just, it blows me away when I think what we did. But the thing that I hang on to is, is in the 1960s in England, we used to get Grace Hopper over to the Computer Society. Now, she was the mother of COBOL and she was the highest ranked naval officer in the, in the US Navy. And she was just an amazing lady. I, being the only lady around, got to meet her at the airport and take her to her hotel and get her tea and so on. And I learned a lot from her. But one day she said to us, she said, would you like to see the latest computer? And she used to travel the world as a speaker for UNIVAC. And she got her handbag out, big Navy handbag, rummaged at the bottom and brought out a thing about the size of a cigarette packet. And we said, is that a computer? And she said, no, that's a box. Inside the box, she brought out what we now know is a chip, but of course we didn't know then. And we said, well, how does it work? I mean, how do you speak to it? How do you, how do you address it? And she said, well, if somebody can bring me a teletype, she said, I can plug this in. We said, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? And she brought a little tiny hair out of the side of this chip and then rummaged in the, in the handbag again and brought out a huge transformer that was much bigger than the computer. It had the full COBOL compiler on and we watched her write programs in COBOL. What she said was, in future, we won't have the big computers we have these days. Computers will be, these are her words, multitudes of minis, all joined together by telephone wires, all across the world. We'll have a huge network. Now, that was the 1960s, and we're there now. Yeah, yeah, we're there now. It's amazing those moments where your mind gets blown, and there's been quite a few of them along the way, I'm sure. Yes. And Moffat, I hope you're enjoying the weather up in Harvey Bay. Oh, 30 degrees, blue skies today, lovely. Wonderful. Really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your journey. And uh, congratulations on the publishing of your book, The IT Girl, 50 Years in Information Technology. 
Thanks, James. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.